John chapter 6. Starting in the middle of the chapter. It's one of the longest chapters in Scripture. And Jesus is in the midst of teaching. And this is what he says in verse 53 and 54. So Jesus said to them, truly, I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you don't have a life in yourselves. The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day because my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. And the one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me. And I in him. Now we're in the midst of this series of messages we're calling Strange Encounters. And we've talked about some obscure passages in scripture. Perhaps not as obscure, but Jacob wrestling with God is one that we don't talk about a whole lot. But the last two weeks in particular, the bears mauling the youths. And then last week, the Nephilim and the sons of God and the daughters of men. Those are more obscure passages. John chapter 6 is not an obscure passage, and some of you, even as I read that, were probably like, well, what's the big deal? We know what he's talking about there. He's talking about the Lord's Supper. Like, we're talking about, like, we do that every time we do the Lord's Supper, that this is my flesh broken for you. This is my blood spilled for you. But the reason that I put this here is because of the reaction that comes from the people in verse 60 that says this. Therefore, when many of his disciples heard this, this teaching is hard, they said, who can accept it? And they go on and talking about this and he says, does that offend you? I'll tell you more, that offends you more. But then in verse 66, it says, from that moment, many of the disciples turned back and no longer accompanied him. Here's a strange encounter. Jesus teaches something so vile to them that they decide they can no longer follow. Now, with 2,000 years and an understanding of the cross and resurrection and the Lord's Supper, we've come to a place where we understand symbolically what he's talking about. But I want to put you in a place like these people would have been for just a moment. Imagine, if you will, that you have moved to a completely new area. You don't know anybody around. I don't know, pick wherever it is, somewhere in the United States. But you've gone to Ogden, Utah. I don't know why that popped into my brain, but there it is, right? You've gone somewhere completely random and you're there. And the first day at work, you meet a friend, somebody that you think, and they talk to you a little about Jesus. You're like, awesome. I think these people are on my board. And they say, man, you've got to come to our church. Well, you wouldn't believe it. Like our, our church is great. The people are great. We have lots of fun together. It's lots of different kind of people. But here's the really killer thing. Like the guy that's our pastor, he is the best preacher I have ever heard. He talks like you wouldn't believe. Like other people sound like they're just kind of doing kitty stuff compared to him. He is awesome. You got to come hear him. And you say, well, all right, when's, you know, when's your services? And they say, well, this weekend we've got a two day revival plan and you come on Saturday and then Sunday and you say, okay, I'll give it a try. I don't have anything else to do. I'm new in town in Ogden, Utah. I'll go. And so on Saturday you go and it is exactly like it's been described. He teaches amazingly. The pastor is engaging and witty and funny and poignant and heavy and it speaks to you 
And at the end of the day, they said, hey, everybody come back tomorrow. We're going to do it again. And so you go back the next day. And the crowd's even bigger the next day. It just seems to be growing from what you hear on and on. And that day, as the pastor stands up, he begins to teach again, but it's a little different tone. And instead of the love and the mercy and all of the things you heard the day before, he starts to delve into some different things and starts to say things about himself that make you uncomfortable. To the end when he says, and if you really want to be a part of what's happening here at our church, I'm going to expect you to drink the blood from my veins. And nibble on my flesh a little bit. And he starts to pull his sleeves up. He's not one of those preachers that preaches with his sleeves already rolled up. And you start to look around like, okay, is this guy serious? And you look in his eyes and he is dead serious. And somebody says, what do you mean by that? Are you symbolically talking? He goes, no, you must drink the blood from my veins. I will pour it out and you will drink it. What are you going to immediately think you're a part of? A cult, right? Wait a minute, that's not, that, that's not right. Like, it's not, you can't ask us to do that. That's gross. Cannibalism, right? We have to realize that when Jesus starts to talk about drinking my blood and eating my flesh, this is before the crucifixion. What did the people there think he was talking about? Drinking his blood and eating his flesh. One pastor calls this the vampire part of the Bible, right? It's weird. It's strange. It's difficult. So here's my question to you. Knowing Jesus, who knows more than we will ever know, amen, has this crowd building. We're going to talk to him about what's happening, what's been happening. Crowd building. He's there. Why in the world would he begin to speak in this way, knowing the reaction that would come from the Jewish people there? Let me tell you the background real quick. Earlier in chapter 6, this chapter starts on a very high note. Jesus is out teaching on that day before. He is people coming to him, talking about how awesome he is, talking about all that is happening in his midst, talking about everything that has happened in his in his ministry. And he is teaching for hours on end. And you know this story. Somewhere towards dinner time, somebody says, hey, um, we don't have any food. And we have a lot of people here, 5,000 men plus women and children. We need to do something about the food. And so Jesus says, well, what do we have? And they said, we got a little boy with a, you know, like some bread and some fish and that's it. Jesus says, bring me whatever you have. And we know the story, right? Jesus feeds 5,000 men plus women and children and has 12 basketfuls left over. The people are pretty pumped about that. When they see what is happening, when the murmurs start going through the crowd, they're pretty excited about that. And they want to talk to Jesus. And they're talking to him long into the night to the point that the disciples are ready to leave. And he says, y'all get in the boat and go ahead. So they get in the boat and go ahead. And Jesus finishes up talking to the people on the shore. And it's time for him to go because they're crossing to the other side of the lake. And it says Jesus is there having those conversations with the people and decides that it's time to go out to the boat. So how does he get to the boat? He rents another boat and paddles over. How does he get there? He walks. Why not? He walks on water to the boat. The 
Peter gets out, walks with them. Peter sinks, he picks him up. They put him in. When he gets in, they are in awe. They are worshiping him. Here's what it says. The next day they get to the other side. When they get to the other side, the crowd has found him. They have walked all the way around the edge to get to the other side to wait on him. He comes out. He's just finished a full day of teaching and working and all of that, walking on water, Talking to the disciples later to the night, his apostles there in the boat. He gets to the other side and the crowds are there again. And they're like, give us more. Let me just ask you a quick question, okay? Why were the crowds there again and why was it larger the next day? For the food, right? If you've been to somewhere and you've seen a miracle like that, you're like, I need to see another one. I need another one. We need another one. And Jesus senses that. And in the midst of that, he begins to tell them, you're just here because of the food I gave you yesterday. But that's not the food that's important. I have food that's more important. I am the bread of life. They're like, what are you talking about? In fact, there's one point, there's this great point where he says, I am the bread of life. And they go, no, you're not. You're. The kid from Nazareth. And people always are like, why, would, why were they not believing? I said, well, what would it take for one of your hometown friends to convince you he was the son of God? Right? A lot. That's, that's the boy from Dyersburg. That's the boy from Greenbrier. Nothing good comes from, well, no, I probably shouldn't say that. Right? But any of those places. But you don't get what I'm saying, right? Like, this, that's not him. And Jesus, sensing what's going on, then breaks out. And you can't be a part of me. You can't be a part of what's going on unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood. Let me ask you a question. Why do you think Jesus, knowing what he knew about the crowd that was there that day, would go to that place and say those words? Here's my first answer for you. It's because in general, we are short-sighted people. And here's what I mean by that. It's exactly what we said just a moment ago. He realized that the only reason the crowds were there is because of the physical food he provided for them yesterday. And what they were looking for was a king who could provide physical food from them every day after day after day. They were looking for someone that would provide for their physical needs. And in the midst of that, he wanted to tell them that there are things that are more important than meeting our physical needs on a daily basis. That there is a spiritual, eternal world that we must pay attention to. So the only time in the Bible that someone has lost sight of the future for the present we talked about Jacob and Esau's story a little bit last week. Esau literally gave away a birthright or was giving up half of the money and everything else that he would get as the oldest son for a bowl of soup because he said he was about to die of hunger. David gave up a lifetime of integrity by not going to war and parking himself on a roof where he could see another roof. Peter was impetuous as they come. Do you remember when Jesus is arrested? What does Peter do? Trust the Lord in all of this, Jesus. You told it was coming. What does Peter do in the midst of that? He cuts off a guy's ear. 
He's going to go to war with the Roman government with 12 guys and a teacher. And Jesus says, this is not the time, Peter. Over and over again in Scripture, we see examples of people who will sacrifice tomorrow to satisfy themselves today. Jesus wants them to know that following Christ is not something that is going to bring you always immediate satisfaction in the moment. And there will be difficult moments ahead. When he's talking there symbolically about drinking his blood and eating his flesh, he's not talking necessarily about a Lord's Supper moment. He is talking about participating with him in the suffering that comes from following him. When Paul is talking about what he wants to experience with Christ, he says, I want to know him. And he does talk about the power of his resurrection. But in the midst of that, he also says, I want to know him. To participate with him. To fellowship with him in his sufferings. Jesus wants them to realize that what they think they want, they don't. That our lives is not about obtaining material possessions here. In fact, the idea about food in our lives is that food was given to us. The need and the desire for food was given to us by God in order to remind us about our need for him. And so for Jesus, this moment, he says, this is not about following me to get earthly food. You want to be fed by the spirit that will last forever. And they say to him, not understanding, Jesus, give us whatever you've got. And he goes, no, 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 you don't understand. What I'm saying is that it's not about here and now. And another place he would say for it to us, do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth can destroy and rust can eat away. But lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where they can't. That we should focus our lives not on the short sights, but on the long haul. And what he's going to tell us in the midst of this is we are short-sighted people. And what he wants them to understand is they will never get enough earthly food to fully and completely satisfy them. There have been a few times in my life when I have been treated to a meal that completely, absolutely filled and satisfied me for that moment. I've shared this before. Y'all know this. One of my favorite places to go is a Brazilian chascaria when I was younger, uh, particularly when I was uh, my first trip to Brazil. I remember going with Gary Taylor, who helps to lead those trips. In 1998, we went to a chascaria um, just outside of Belo Horizonte, Brazil, it was a family chascaria, and it was the most food I'd probably ever eaten in my life. And when I woke up the next morning, you know what I needed to do? Eat breakfast. And after I finished breakfast, you know what five hours later I needed to do? Eat lunch. Because physical food never satisfies long term. And Jesus says, you've come to me looking for short term fixes when I'm offering you the eternal solution. Only Jesus satisfies. Can I tell you what Jesus was doing in this moment? Is he was running people off intentionally. 
He knew how they would react. He knew what they would do. And he was running them off because they weren't ready for the commitment. They were in it for a superficial reason. He was not going to be an earthly king. He was saving their eternal souls. And part of the problem in our lives is that we focus so much, so much of the time on what's here and now that we consistently spend our lives on things that are wasting away or will waste away soon or never have fulfillment. Jim Elliott's famous quote is, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. And that's what Jesus is calling them to understand is that only he satisfies. Now, look at verse 60. This won't be on your screen up here. But if you look at verse 66, it says, From that moment, many of his disciples. Now, let me just let you know for sure. That's not the 12. That's not the inner 12. That's the, that's the huge group. That's the thousands that are around him. Thousands left him that day. Some other estimates out there, we don't have a good number, but greater than half of the people that were following him left that day and said it's too much. And I love verse 67. This, this little area is one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture. In the last two weeks I've told you I've preached on passages I've never preached before in my life. I've preached on this passage a lot because I love it. it. speaks to me. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go too? Now he says, you don't want to go away too, do you? He's saying to them, this is your chance. They've left. If you want to leave, do you want to go? This is your chance. You in or you out. And I love what Simon Peter says in verse 68. Lord, to whom will we go? You have the words of eternal life. You have come to believe. We have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. And I love the answer there. Peter says, we don't have any other choice. And then he gives us a threefold understanding that only Jesus satisfies. You have the words of eternal life. You hold our future in your hand. We have come to believe what we have seen in the past few months, the past few years. Jesus convinces us that you are the son of God. And we know that and is sustaining to us in the present. Dear Jesus, we have nowhere to go because you hold our future. You have convinced us of our past and you are our hope in the presence. You have everything we need. We have no other choice because only you satisfy God built us with cravings and desires. For instance, food that we talked about. And our desire for food is to remind us of our need for Him. Jesus, in discussing this with the people there, brings up the manna God gave to the Israelites. And that daily manna was a reminder to them of their daily dependence upon God. And food is to be a daily reminder to us of our dependence upon God. It's why we believe in saying grace before meals, saying a prayer before meals. Yes, I believe that God works in the midst of that. And I know that sometimes it's weird. We're praying over meals that are completely unhealthy for us. It's almost as if we're saying, God, you and your miraculous nature, turn this Cheeto into something nutritionally valuable. Right? There will be lots of that tonight. There will be some people that have 
suppers of Reese's cups and Butterfingers. I heard an amen on that. I don't know where that. Right. So, yes, there is that element, but primarily we're giving thanks to the blessings God has given us in our lives and acknowledging our need for him is the purpose. The other night um, at Madison Creek's Trunk or Treat event, there was a a little boy that came in dressed like uh, mid-90s Michael Jackson. Moonwalk Michael Jackson. The glove, the hair, the hat. It was perfect costume. And I thought back to the night that Michael Jackson moonwalked on TV for the first time. And I watched in awe. I mean, I was like eight years old at the time, watching with my parents. And I remember my dad saying to me from his recliner, he will never be Elvis. So I expected an amen or two there, but I didn't get it. And I'll never forget that when Michael Jackson died, tragically early, trying to take something that would make him feel better and take the edge off, I couldn't help but think of the similarities between those two guys. Not even counting the fact that Michael married his daughter. Two guys that had everything most people would ever dream of and yet found no satisfaction in any of it. I think about athletes that obtain, I've used this quote before from Tom Brady, who's won two more Super Bowls since he said it, but they ask him what it's like to win Super Bowls, and he said, I just always feel like when I get there, it should feel more than it does. And the only thing I think is, I guess i got to go get another one. Our society, our culture in spite of all the difficulties we have, is the most blessed society in America that has ever existed. Materially, financially, we are more blessed than we have ever been. And yet, anxiety and depression are at higher levels than they have ever been. Especially if you look at all the statistics among our young people. Because we have decided to try to satisfy the needs of our lives with temporal things that we just need more and more of when only Jesus satisfies. And if you're here today and you've chased down every avenue you know to try to satisfy your life with something other than Jesus, I will tell you this, it will fail. Maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but it will And what Jesus was very careful of in this particular moment when he starts to tell them, unless you eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, you cannot be a part of me. What he is saying to them is, you don't understand. I'm not here to feed you physical food all the time. I am here to restore your soul. I just wonder how many of us in this room today, maybe for the first time, maybe you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, and you need to ask him to save you, and you know that's what it needs, but you've tried everything else, or you're on that search, on that journey, and you've tried it all, 
And today Jesus is just saying, it's time to accept what I have done for you on the cross. And believe in the resurrection and be saved. Some of you, maybe it's more than that. You have something that you know has been in your life and you are a follower of Christ, but you've tried to find fulfillment and satisfaction in a career or a family or a relationship or something that is not Christ. And it's causing problems with everything in your life because you've put so much attention there. And today you just need to say, I need to return only to Jesus. This morning, I'm just going to ask you in a moment before we do the Lord's Supper together that if there's some reason you need to come and pray or come and talk to me, I'm just going to ask you to respond however the Lord leads you to do that. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for this moment and this time, for the opportunity we have to worship and respond to you. Lord, I pray as we've gathered in this place, that you'll remind us that only you satisfy, that nothing can. Career accomplishment, finances, success, fame, fortune, relationships, nothing can satisfy but you. And so Lord, we pray that in this moment, in this day, you would reveal to us those things in our lives that we have placed our trust and our desire in more than we have you. Lord, I pray if there are those in this room that have never accepted you as their Savior, that this morning would be their time, that they would come to know you as their Savior, and that more than anything else, Lord, we pray that your name would be the name glorified in this place, and that your kingdom would be advanced because of it. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.